Welcome back to Stories Out of Time and Space. We've of course been doing our deep dive, our epic journey into Red Dwarf. We've gone through all the classics and we're now entering the more controversial years of the series. I'm your regular host Scott Weatherly and as always I'm joined by Julian. Julian, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. Uh, For the occasion, I'm eating Vindaloo, so (laughs) I will be ready. How are you doing? Not too bad. I'm not too bad. Still locked down, and uh, but you know, always good when we can watch some Red Dwarf. Um, but Amen. saying saying that, these are the some of the controversial years: Series Seven and Series Eight. Um, some changes in the writing, um, and and the setup really, the whole sort of shebang. Um, just as a sort of intro, like, you know, what are your thoughts on these two seasons we're going to be covering today? Well, I think they're fascinating. Um, you know, uh, listeners will recall that I kind of had a uh, a, a little more of a downward uh, view of the previous two seasons than is conventional. And I think that uh, six especially is, you know, we went through it a little fast. You know, most of it we were pretty disappointed by. Um, I think seven sort of is at a similar level, maybe even a little worse. I was surprised by how much I liked eight. Um, I didn't remember eight that well. Uh, I certainly had seen it at least a couple of times, but I didn't really remember it that well, but I really liked it. And I thought that, I mean, it's uneven here and there. There are things we'll get into, but um, you know, I was surprised how much I liked it. And I think that uh, a few things stand out for me. I mean, one is that both seasons, I mean, I know it's, it's Naylor doing it alone, um, they have a lot more continuity. It's like all of a sudden, Crichton's always referencing, you know, his situation when he was found. Um, there's, you know, so many references to earlier episodes. Uh, it really is a, a, a different show in, in that respect. Um, you know, and I like, I like, I think, the addition of Kachansky. Um, you know, I don't think that she's as funny as Rimmer, obviously. I mean, you and I both love Rimmer, mm. but I, I I do like the modification of the sort of status quo of the show, the same way that the previous season kind of got rid of Red Dwarf and, you know, was set on Starbug and, and had uh, some, you know, had a sort of like running uh, storyline a little bit. All of a sudden in season seven, they're not looking for Red Dwarf anymore at all. <laughs> That's just been completely jettisoned. But um, they're much more interested in continuity. And then you start getting these changes to the to the show and to its basic formula in a way that I really like. Um, and I think that plays out for me in eight in a much more satisfying way. What about you? What are your what are your impressions watching seven and eight again? 
Yeah, I, 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 I agree with what you're saying uh, about the continuity stuff. It's quite nice, actually, that say there are references back, uh, more so in 8, um, to sort of previous adventures and previous seasons. Um, you know, obviously, uh, the luck virus and everything plays quite a big part in it for a short time and that sort of thing. Um, I, de- I definitely agree. I, I, I was going into 8 really expecting to sort of be like slogging through it. I was expecting. I, remember, I just remembered it when it came out, being really disappointed with it back in um, nineteen ninety nine. Um, but looking at it now, I'm like, actually, like you say, it has a, a different feel. It's got a different setup, but I don't dislike it. Um, and it's interesting to see the characters in in different scenarios, especially engaging with additional characters. Um, and so, I actually did really enjoy the majority of eight. I think there's a couple of episodes that. That fall a bit, you know, <clears throat> probably a bit lower than the others. Um, series seven, though, I is the other way around. I remember really enjoying series seven. I think it was just the fact that I'd waited so long for series six. You know, following series six, to know what happened with the with the cliffhanger and everything. That I remember really enjoying series seven, but going back to it this time, it it, it sort of, for the most part, fell flat. There's some really good bits in it. Don't get me wrong. There's there's some excellent moments, but they never sort of. There's no classic episodes, mm-hmm. um, and I agree with that the addition of Kachansky actually sort of again they've you know they're changing the dynamic, and I enjoy some of that, um, but it's more a sort of. Series seven feels forced in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I sort of struggled with some of the, some of the bits and pieces, um, but then there's, there's other bits I really really enjoy. So um, yeah, it was a really uneven experience. But series eight it was a nice surprise actually. Um, and I said when we get into it, we'll sort of talk about why. Um, well, I'm it, I'm glad to hear that. I mean, I I think that uh, one of the things that really comes out, I, I agree with your assessment. One of the things that really come came out for me in watching these two together, especially compared to the previous seasons, is how the show is, is, you know, obviously like, you know, they had to, they had limited availability for Rimmer and, you know, they, they wanted to have a replacement and not just, you know, and, and Kachansky made sense. But I think that, um, there are a lot of the things that are sort of like undertones of previous seasons come out or are questioned in these two in ways that I find interesting, not always successful, but, but interesting. One is how blokish the show is that, mm. you know, there's, there's no female cast member. I mean, they are, it's not that uh, Rimmer and Lister sit around uh, objectifying women all the time, but I mean, you have episodes where, uh, you know, like Dave uh, gives uh, Arnold, you know, his memory of a past girlfriend. I mean, literally, the past girlfriend is an object to be passed along, right? Yes. Um, <laughs> you know, and so having Kachansky on um, causes sort of discussion almost of how blokish the show is. And it's it's fun watching Crichton... Um, struggle with that struggle with the, like, you know, ironing panties and bras, but you know, which is a little silly. It's a little forced, but um, 
And I agree with you. I mean, Series 7 does feel forced. I, I think the number one thing for me is it's just not funny. Um, mm. The humor just doesn't land. You can see how like it's it's well-written, but it's just not quite landing. Um, but I thought 8 flows a lot better. But it does sort of examine this, you know, there are these discussions of the blokishness of the, of the show. And, uh, you know, I found that uh, very interesting and very refreshing. And in the same way, like Crichton's, uh, obsession with Dave, you know, I mean, he's clearly in love with Dave and mm. there are, there is this kind of like subtext of, uh, homosexuality there of homophobia at times. I mean, there's a lot of discussion of like gay stuff and sort of like, um, you know, gay overtones to the series that really were there all along. Like, you know, you and I have talked about what is at the root of, of Arnold and Dave's relationship. Um, and I think that that gets kind of questioned and put in a slightly different light. Yeah, <clears throat> I definitely think that's a, one of the things, when you say it's a sort of, um, you know, it's sort of an undertone or, or a theme. I mean, I think it, it gets almost blatantly called out Um in, in duck soup, you know, when they're trapped in the, mm-hmm. in the, the duck works and stuff. Um, and, uh, Kachansky actually explains that we'll, we'll get to why she's there, <laughs> but her, her Dave from another dimension, um, or another reality is gay. And, um, the, the reaction of, of our Dave, of, of our lister is that quite something. No, 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 I'm straight. No, no I'm, you know, <laughs> as straight as they come. And it is that sort of like, um, you know, almost of like that, that thing, and they, they then roll it back that the other version is gay as well. They do they roll that back, don't they? So, oh, you're just using this as a, as a distraction, to, so I don't have to think about um, the situation they're in. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, it it's politics. I mean, again, this is 1997, so it's politics are a little different, right? Um, but it, it does. It's, it, I like the fact. I mean, the relationship between. Crichton and Lister is in that's one of the high points I do find in the show. Um, and Crichton, you know, that that sort of like doting, uh, almost like say, almost like sycophantic sort of you know, um, admiration he has for Lister. Um, you know, it does get called into question, but also his paranoia and that sort of need he has to be to or the need he has to be needed, you know, mm-hmm. um, is 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 funny. Um, and Again, sort of, you know, the one of the things that you often forget because he's under so much prosthetics is like, you know, there's, there's Robert Llewellyn is in there doing all this, and I think he he actually shines in this series. Um, where I've sort of lauded, I think um, Chris Barry in the past, I honestly think um, Robert Llewellyn as Crichton is actually one of the best things in series seven. Mm-hmm. Um, like they they give him an opportunity to do things that he hasn't done in the past. Like you know, we've had the things of him doing. Um, you know, when he was sort of um, Sparehead 3, you had droid rot, and so it had like a northern English accent, you know. Um, and when he was human, he's done some bits and pieces. But with this, I just think he gets to have that a little bit more, um, uh, challenge himself and be, make Crichton a little bit different in this, which is quite, which, which I find fun. Yeah, he does get sort of more time. And, and, and because of that business with Lister and that sort of, you know, love affair sort of thing. Uh, Crichton gets to squeal a lot. <laughs> you know, there's yeah, yeah. I mean, Crichton is super whiny uh, yeah. in these two seasons. Um, 
but then also there's you know on on this whole sort of the gender and uh homosexuality or homosociality also like you know all of season eight they're in prison which is Mm -hmm. this you know charged uh landscape and Crichton is horrified to be classified with the women you know and it's like well why would this droid be so horrified why why does he have this view of gender I mean it's not just like I don't understand how to take care of women I mean and they do make reference to like I mean he was terribly taking care of women Mm -hmm. uh you know when he was discovered but you know his abject horror at uh you know being thought a woman or classified a woman it seems both kind of out of step with how we treat it today, but also yeah. an interesting part of the sort of sexual uh, dynamics of the show that wasn't really there or was an undercurrent in past seasons. Yeah, it is interesting because it's sort of, you know, he, um, they do try and deal with gender, uh, and like I say, it's not, it's not, I don't know, it's held, handled in the best possible way, but like, you know, his determination to be proven to be a man, he even, in you know, he even creates himself a robotic penis. Um, <laughs> Archie, which, that, I mean, that's, it's, there's some good little jokes around it, but. Oh, yeah. Um, it, it is interesting because, you know, and then at one point, like, he, accept, he almost accepts his role and then is able. I mean, you know, we'll get into it, but in, in the, the episode Crichty TV, like, you know, the actual, you said about the objectification of women, like, that whole episode is about Crichton sort of using the objectification of women, the, the male inmates, um, mm-hmm. to, to make himself sort of like rich and powerful in the prison system. So, um, yeah, it, it is interesting sort of um, how, how they sort of set Crichton up in these two series. Yeah, I agree completely. And and it's great. I think he really does. You're right. He really does get a chance to shine. Um, mm. And then, you know, I think that anytime you change casts, right, um, the dynamics are different, right? I mean, Rimmer was such a part of the original concept, right? I mean, it, it was mm. Rimmer, Dave, and the cat. And then you have the addition of Crichton, and we sort of see that as like, oh, that's the classic four. It all clicks once you have Crichton. Um, but, you know, Crichton was not original. Um, he was not uh, part of that original dynamic. And then you remove Rimmer for a while, and it doesn't kind of really click with Kachansky. But once Rimmer comes back in Series 8, it feels to me like the chemistry is all there. Uh, mm. You know, Kachansky is part of the team. And it's great to see not just Crichton have these uh, episodes and these these moments to flourish over and over again, but Rimmer has some. I think even Lister uh, is acting at a higher level. Um, mm. Kachansky fits in fine once you get to eight. Um, and so, you know, it's a different dynamic, but it, it takes a little while to settle in. And I don't think it works as well without Rimmer, or maybe it would have if they had gone on. But, um, you know, there is a sort of at least a couple uh, basic changes to the dynamic of the show. And I find it fascinating that it works as well as it does, despite the lulls in, in seven. Mm. Yeah, eight, eight's an interesting reset. Um, and it's it's... When we get onto the futures, let's see, the, the reason I say that these two are sort of controversial and almost like an anomaly in the in the in the um, 
continuity of the entire show is obviously this is the end of the BBC era. So series eight is the end of the BBC um, creating and producing Red Dwarf. Um, after this, we get a very large break and we will get onto those episodes and you get what's made by UK TV um, for a channel called Dave. Um, and, and those episodes fall straight back into step of the classic um, setup. <clears throat> and so, that you know, um, the end of eight is, is an interesting one. We will get to it, but, you know, the resolution and does it actually have any, is there any continuity, you know, ongoing? Um for um, future the future series, um, but let's jump back. Let's start. You know, as we do, we get into the episodes. Yeah, because um, each episode, each series has got sort of like eight episodes, so it's a, it's a bit of a lot. There were longer runs as well, which is interesting. Um, but I mean, starting with series series seven, the other things to remember for series seven is, like you say, that um, um, Rob Grant had um, had, had um, uh, Grant and Nader, so it's yes, yeah, so it's Rob. Uh, <clears throat> Rob Grant and uh, had left, so Doug Naylor was obviously just, was just doing doing the work, doing the writing, but also they removed the studio audience for um, series seven in order to film it more um, theatrically. They went on location more, the sets were bigger. They tried to film it in a theatrical way, um, <clears throat> and the BBC were determined to sort of have a, a different look and feel to the show, bring it up to date. You know, the, there's introductions of more computer special effects. Um, and off the bat, the one thing I will, will say as we get into this is, I think the cast really struggle not performing in front of a studio audience. Yeah. I, I honestly think that's a part and parcel of it. Um, but the first thing we do as we get into all this is they have to resolve Series 6. So Series 6 left us on a cliffhanger. We'd had the future dwarfers from 15 years into the future come back, and we'd had a battle between... Um, the current Red Dwarf crew on the on the their Starbug and the future Starbug. Um and they both were destroyed. That's the end of series six is you see Starbug being destroyed just as Rimmer in a moment of heroism is about to destroy the time machine. And so we basically get a little bit like what you get at the start of series three, uh, if you want to slow the scroll down. <laughs> Is a little bit of Lister sort of providing a um, gobbledygook um, explanation as to why they're there, and actually how come now Starbug is massive and they can have multiple sets, uh, including a sleeping quarters, a ga- you know a galley, um, engine rooms, and all that kind of stuff. Um, which I'm not going to get into. But what are your thoughts on the sort of like the, the way they get over the the um, cliffhanger of C- series six? Uh it does not please me. Um, I think that it's satisfactory. Um, mm. You know, essentially all they do is, you know, it's, it starts with Lister amusingly using a camcorder. You know, yeah. there are those sort of <laughs> moments. I mean, later on you have the, the captain of Red Dwarf watching a television, you know, yeah. um, there are these odd technological moments, but um, you know, when he explains that, uh, yeah, you know, uh, the future selves killing them created a paradox, you know, essentially, you know, Rimmer saved them all by, by blowing up this time uh, thing. And then, you know, the first episode, uh, Tika to Ride is sort of following up on, in a way it's following up on the previous episode, but only in as much as it's about whether they will get that 
uh, time device again or not. But I think mm. that, you know, the sweeping under the rug, I mean, it just feels as if that climax is resolved in the opening minutes. And so that's not very satisfying. On the other hand, it's so much better than the opening of three. Um, you know, obviously I've made my peace with that, but I always find when I hit three, the lack of resolution, um, you know, that crawl is just really annoying to me. I mean, you have to kind of get over it here. At least it's on screen and you can think, yeah, okay. I mean, I, 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 there have been worse resolutions within an episode. It's just a little annoying that it's a quick resolution to a cliffhanger. Uh, what are your thoughts? Yeah, no, I agree. It is. It's it's sort of, um, for want of a better word, it's slapdash. It's, mm-hmm. it's it's that sort of thing of like, all right, we can get rid of that. And it, but it almost they try to they try to build into the first episode. And this episode, this first episode, um, you know, the the fact that the whole premise is is the sort of like, oh yeah, because of these events that happened, um. I mean, it's based on a single joke. The, the problem with this ep- first episode is it's sort of based on a sort of a bit of a single joke that they try and then expand. But you've had this whole thing of like, well, when we have the time travel device, it causes all these problems, and you know it's really dangerous. And we've actually we're now living in this unstable um, paradox that we don't really understand. So, yeah, again, never referenced in the series. It just sort of it's sort of just that's it. We're now living in this unstable paradox. Um, so we can't have the time drive, and then they go, well, we could do it for this purpose and then it becomes just dave using that to go get a whole bunch of curries um <laughs> at some point and they travel back in time and it's sort of causes all this other stuff and again it sort of gets to that whole thing around as we've come to you know before we go around the cycle of, of, of how this show deals with time travel um but again it, i don't know this this first one if it, it, it's got some interesting moments but it it then I don't know if they're trying to, what they're trying to do with him, but it starts to sort of um, almost piss on its own continuity. So one of the things they sort of they, they sort of seeped into the show a little bit in series five, but they played with quite a lot within series six, was Cat having almost like astronomical senses. Like you know he could sort of mm-hmm. his center he, he could smell uh, things out in space, which is ludicrous, but he was often right. And in this first episode, they come across, eventually they come across a dead person. He sort of sniffs it out, gives away all this information, sort of like, you right. know, CSI way. And then it's proven to be completely wrong. You know, but what, what happened to everything you were doing in Series 6? <laughs> it's like, you know, and it, it's the same thing. I just, I just feel a bit like, I don't know. It, it, I'm not going to say that because it's the same creator, where you'd want to sort of like, you know, do that to the continuity. But it's almost like, well, you set something up which actually worked quite well. Why not keep it? Now you're actually literally pissing it away. Um, and they, they, you know, they just feels like a, this first episode almost feels like they're trying to do a hard, not hard, it's like a soft reset. Mm-hmm. But they don't want you to think about what's gone before and stuff. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know. I, I struggle with this first episode because it just feels um, the story is daft. And they sort of because there's, there's you know it's, it's just silly, and they just wash away some like, much more interesting concepts um, in those first couple of minutes. So yeah, um, ticket to ride is an opening episode is is actually a real disappointment for me. Um, 
I, I guess that I have a little more nuanced view. I mean, or a little more mixed. I mean, I think that, you know, the cat thing bothers you more than it does me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're right to point it out. It's a, it's a good catch. Um, you know, this is a show, though, that has um, made Rimmer a, a, you know, man who's only had sex with one woman who then <laughs> isn't. I mean, you know, there are a lot of continuity changes between seasons. Um, you know, you're right about that change to Cat. On the other hand, the same episode, you know, at the same time that it's ignoring continuity there, it is is revitalizing the idea of Crichton's multiple heads, Crichton's mm-hmm. penis tube, you know, the crotch tube. <laughs> I mean, there are a lot of callbacks, even in this this first episode, not only, you know, the resolution of the cliffhanger and like bothering to do anything with the, the time drive. Um, so, I mean, it's strange that they have a whole bunch of callbacks and miss the cat stuff. Um mm-hmm. So that's strange. But I think that, you know, the the central plot of this episode is that, I mean, of course, the going back in time to get curries is ridiculous. And I agree with you that, you know, I mean, it's an uneven episode that is really not, it's not working. It's not funny. It's not satisfying. But um, the central plot is, you know, going back in time to, to you know, to get curries because the, the Indian food has been destroyed and these these mm. stupid time anomalies they're experiencing. Um, you know, they uh, inadvertently save John F. Kennedy's life. And, and there's a little bit of, you know, there's slapstick with Oswald. You know, they knock him out of a window and then he, you know, Oswald is on the ledge and... You know, um, you know, and then they they alter the timeline, saving Kennedy. And, and it, I think that stuff is interesting. I think that stuff is uncomfortable. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it, it, I think it's very uncomfortable. It's not clear what tone they wanted to have. Um, you know what I'm saying? But I still think yeah, it's no, like I, fascinating and brave. No, I think you're right. And I think maybe that's the problem is... You know, there's there's an un it's an uneven tone, and I think that is part of the problem because I do I think so. You're right because this notion of um, you know if Kennedy had survived, like you know it would actually bring um, you know uh, America closer to nuclear war and all this other stuff, and you know obviously the the, the potential for the impeachment is really interesting. Um, but again, like I say, the, the tone just feels sort of uneven, like, uh, and I think it's. They want to go. They want to go more theatrical. They want to do this stuff, and so you have these sort of more serious, or you know, these sort of more contemplative moments. But then it's sort of followed up by slapstick, and mm-hmm. it's just sort of it's not it, it it's just not glued together well. You know, they don't flow. I think you said about sort of season eight flows better, and that I think that's the problem. Mm-hmm. Like these fir- this first episode does not flow, um, and for me, it just feels like a really disjointed experience. I mean, the one thing I do like actually. There are moments in this, as I said, like you know, again, I think Crichton, where he has a spare head that has his um, his guilt chip removed and stuff, is quite funny, and you know, yeah. he sort of inadvertently causes them to sort of cannibalize a, a guy. Um, there are moments well, that he, I think quite good. He smokes and he says, "You know, uh, you bet your ass." You know, it's, it's, <laughs> yeah. that is a highlight. Yeah, I agree. 
Uh, again, I think it's Robert Llewellyn is actually really enjoyable in this episode. But, uh, the, the, you know, of the serious moments, there's a moment when obviously they do go, but they're you know, traveling through and they go to um, what what is then called, you know, obviously still called Idlewild Airport. And um, they ha- uh, Lister has a conversation with, with Kennedy. Basically explains, like, no, your death caused, the, you know, this airport was renamed. Um, and, you know, you were seen as this great sort of liberal leader, you know, that you, you've sort of basically screwed that up. Um, you know, the only way we can do it is, you know, that day in in, um, in Dallas, like, you, you need to die. And the acceptance of, like, Kennedy's acceptance when he uses that line, you know, what, um, think not what um, your country can do for you sort of thing. And, and Lister's mm-hmm. response is like, yeah, that would have been a good speech. And so it was. Um I like that little moment, you know, because there's there's that sort of like acknowledgement of, yeah, I, you know, me giving my life actually could make you know, my country a better place. That's the only sort of like dramatic moment in the whole show that I, th- I feel works. Um, and but for, for the others, I don't know, it just feels a bit just disjointed. I think is the only way. If it's like they're, mm-hmm. they're trying something new and they haven't quite, like you said, got the chemistry and. Because they're so used, to almost like the, the you know the setup and the 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 patter and the the rhythm they had the show before, it sort of falls into that and then tries something different, almost in a single scene, um, and it, it's I think it struggles with it. I don't know what you think. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. I think that the the JFK stuff, if you just describe the bare bones plot, right that they inadvertently save Kennedy, that winds up producing a sort of, you know, dystopia. It's very unconvincing, the explanation for that, but whatever. Um, And they have to convince Kennedy not only to die, but to be the shooter on the grassy knoll to kill himself. Uh, You know, that is funny, potentially poignant. I mean, a brave sci-fi idea. And in fact, um, it's one that Gene Roddenberry had. Um, it was the idea of uh, involving time travel with the Kennedy assassination was something that Roddenberry wanted to do for Star Trek II. So we could have gotten Tika to Star Trek colon Tika to ride instead of <laughs> The Wrath of Khan. Um, but, but you can see why like Paramount would say, there's no way that's a good idea, right? We're not going to spend you know, $20 million on this <laughs> this idea that is inherently so problematic. So, I, I mean, I like I, I like that basic plot. And I think it's 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 brave. It's interesting. There are elements that, that work. There are elements that don't work. But I even like the odd tonal inconsistency. Um, I mean, nothing is weirder for me than having a kind of like Marx Brothers... Uh, scene with lee harvey oswald out on Mm. the ledge you know like he he ties a a rope to himself like as a lifeline uh and there's this comedy as either like dave opens a window and and says what's this rope doing here and pulls on it and oswald has gotten back in on the other side of the the screen and oswald's pulled out of the window and killed by dave pulling this line which all of which is totally ridiculous. I mean, turn to your right and notice there's a guy coming in through the window. That's just classic kind of slapstick, silly comedy. And the fact that you're doing that with the assassination of John F. Kennedy, this sort of like, 
especially as an American, the sort of like religious moment in our national understanding um, is is so in and a moment that is taken seriously in the script and other places. I I, I kind of love in a perverse way that mm. you know the sheer perversity of that that what they do with the Kennedy script. I, I can see what you're saying, and maybe it is that maybe it is a national thing, a sort of you know, and um, the payoff, maybe you know, for, for an American audience, because again, I think they would, you know, this is obviously almost feels again like they're trying to do something for an American audience because they could have done this as a British thing, I suppose, in some way. I don't know, you know, maybe killing off Churchill before World War Two or something, um, and didn't they? They chose that as a choice, you know, for a twenty minute, for a, what a half hour, forty minute show. Um, so there was clearly a choice being made there. Um, so I can see what you're saying. Um, um, and there are scenes, like you say, there are certain slapstick scenes that do work um, better than others. Um, but yeah, now I, 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 I going back to watch this episode, I worried. But by the end of the, I sat there at the end of this episode and I was like, I really like this season the first time. If that, If this is episode one, what am I going to be thinking for the rest of the season? So I was, you know, it made me, this this episode made me nervous in the sense of like, oh yeah, there are fine moments. But the one thing, the thing is, all I could think of in my head was um, some of the stuff that happens in Beyond a Joke, um, that one of the mm-hmm. later episodes that sort of involves the sort of the sense the sensibility stuff. I was thinking yeah. like, Right, if I'm not if I'm not enjoying this, by the time I get to sort of episode six and seven, I'm really going to be disappointed with this. I was I was really starting to worry straight off the bat about this series <clears throat> for that first episode, and, and that proved correct in your case. Um, we'll see because there are definitely some moments in the series <laughs> that it picks up, um. But I, I don't think I don't think the for me I say the the first episode for me is is probably one of the weaker episodes of this series, mm-hmm. um, and uh, yeah my I'd say my concern isn't fully doesn't fully play out. There are definitely some episodes that, that are, are better than others, um, but there's also some absolute dross in here as well. Um, but yeah, so ticket to ride, you know it, it's it's hmm. any of the comments on it. Yeah, I mean, I, I do wonder about that difference between, you know, the American audience and the British audience. I mean, um, I couldn't care less about Princess Diana or the royal family. I mean, I, I think having royals is an embarrassment to Britain, frankly. Um, having said that, like, I could imagine a, you know, a Princess Diana uh, episode, you know, uh, being quite controversial and uh, being interesting well, if, over here, but maybe not hmm. being as controversial. Yeah. Well, if it had come out in 1997, it'd be very bloody interesting because that's sort of well, predictive. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, <laughs> Dodi Elfire. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, it. yeah. yeah. I'm pretty sure someone would have been asking some questions at the BBC if that had been, uh, <laughs> had been aired. <laughs> well, you know, they do have time travel. Uh, but, yeah. You know, I mean, I find that the explanation, I have to remark that like they, it's weird to me as an American because like in some ways the understanding of American history is like, clearly there's a concern for Kennedy. There's an appreciation for Kennedy. Obviously Kennedy was beloved around the world at the time uh, and, and still is to some degree, but um, there's a kind of like appreciation for this story and there are things they get right. But then like the idea that 
they seem to Im- confuse impeachment with a criminal sentence. You know, like mm. John F. Kennedy is impeached in 64 and then he's sentenced to the, like an open prison. I don't know what that even is. Uh, it's certainly, you know, not part of an impeachment proceeding. Um, and then the idea is that, you know, the mob gets J. Edgar Hoover to run. Um, and because the mob likes, uh, you know, is, is tied to Havana, that the uh, Edgar just lets uh, the Russians put, you know, nuclear missiles in Cuba. Mm-hmm. I mean, first of all, the Cuban Missile Crisis was two years before then and was successfully negotiated and solved by Kennedy. Uh, so that seems a little weird. Secondly, the idea that having these missiles would cause all American cities to be evacuated, like they're targets for nuclear missiles. We can't live in Dallas anymore. Yeah. It's utterly absurd. And, and But most importantly, those missiles could not have reached Dallas. The missiles in Cuba, you know, could have hit, uh, you know, in Florida and a little north of Florida. The concern was it was going to wipe out Miami. It's cer- they certainly did not and would not in 64 have had the range to hit uh, Dallas. So, I mean, there are things that, you know, like I really appreciate the sort of like willingness of this show to address this thing that um, I find fascinating. I like alternate history. Um, and that Roddenberry and Paramount wouldn't touch. I love the perversity of it. I love the courage of this episode. I think, on the other hand, it is off, and it, it's off in interesting ways, and it doesn't really work. Um, and, and to your point, I kind of find that I, you know, I have in my notes like it feels so much like it's in the groove, and yet, mm-hmm. you know, like the the actors are comfortable. It feels like a mature show and yet nothing really feels right. The pacing is off. It's not funny. Everything just feels like a little, like 30 degrees off of where it should be in some way. Yeah, I agree. Exactly. Totally. That's, that's what it is. It feels, I feel like I'm watching red dwarf, but not, you know what I mean? It almost like they've like, they've made some active changes <clears throat> and they haven't quite landed yet, and that's not the end. Of, you know, that's not the worst thing because, again, like there are things here that, that you know the the budget's up and they're trying new things. And you know, I I actually like some of the new sets. I think I, I like the idea of them being on on Starbug. I think it gives them a bit more flexibility. So, um, I'm I'm whilst I have concerns, I've I'm wanting or willing at least to go on a little further to see what happens. Um. So this, what do you think of uh, Stoke Me a Clipper, the second episode? Well, actually, this is interesting because this is where I actually think, oh, okay, this could be more, in- this could be interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and they actually pull me back in with this episode. Now, there's a couple of things I think, you know, that, that if I'm being nitpicky, I will question in a bit. But the opening of this episode uh, of Stoke Me a Clipper uh, which is a sort of an, an Ace Rimmer centric episode. So it's another Rimmer centric episode, which is probably why I'm, I'm on board, um, <laughs> if I'm honest. But this, this this whole opening is so ridiculous beyond belief yeah. that it's yeah. so farcical and so slapstick. I'm I'm bored because <laughs> I'm like, oh, this is some of the stupidity of what I'm used to. This is the sort of the ludicrousness I, I like. And you know, I mean, this opening is sort of like you know, it's it's Ace Rimmer versus Nazis, um, for, for no, but one of them has a pet alligator or crocodile, 
<laughs> and then he uses it, which he uses to sort of sky surf down and all, and then sort of saves a princess. And so the whole thing is so, so over the top and ridiculous. That sort of like that tone of sort of, you know, where they're trying to get that sort of serious tone in the first episode. It's just like, it's, it's nowhere to be found. I mean, there are moments later in the episode, but like nowhere to be found. Mm-hmm. And then the fact that it's topped off by two guy, a guy that comes up and actually says like, you know, what a guy. Um, <laughs> and, you know, in a, you know, in German. Yeah, I, I love this opening again because it's Me sort too. of like it's it's so absurd. Um, but I, I'm I'm laughing again. You know, I'm laughing at this this, this opener, um, and I'm really you know I'm thinking, oh, so what's going to happen? So to, redu- to introduce Ace Rimmer properly again, not just as a sort of um, a shoehorned in like they did in six. I'm I'm on board, and I'm sort of, okay, great. We're gonna get proper Ace Rimmer. It turns out we don't. We we, we get a, but in a way we do and we don't. But um, no, I I, I like this episode, um, and I really enjoy sort of the um, dilemma that that is presented to Rimmer as well after all these years. Uh, and I on, I honestly think this is something that they may have been building towards. I think some of the stuff that they introduced in season five, and I said that we said it in series six as well, that they started to sort of introduce some bits and pieces, you know, hard light drive and then introduced him doing this and that. And eventually to have him, to have him die committing a heroic act uh, at the end of series six, it felt like this was almost like something they were trying to lead to, or at least do something with it. So um, I, I do really like this episode. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I do too. Um, I, I think that that sort of the teaser, um, before the credits is it's almost like a mini Ace Rimmer movie. <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah. It, it, it is, it is so wonderful. And we've talked before about my, my fetish for uh, episodes that kind of start dramatically uh, in, in situations where you think, how the hell did we get here? Um, and, you know, certainly having Ace Rimmer, uh, you know, confronting Nazis on a plane, um, you know, and, and the, the head Nazi pets the alligator on his lap as if it's, you know, the cat from, uh, you know, the James Bond. Um, and, uh, you know, he uh, he shoots uh, the um, chains off of the princess to rescue her. Uh, you know, and, and there are moments where I thought, you know, this is very sort of 70s Bond. It's very uh, it's almost Flash Gordon in moments. Mm. I mean. Uh, and, and it's so, it, it's so tongue in cheek. It's so self-aware and, and it is so much fun. I, I think it's a very good episode. This is my favorite episode of the season by far. Um, and you know, it's not perfect, but I quite like it. Um, and, and, you know, just to get into the, the main episode, uh, the main body of the episode, you know, the idea is that Ace is wounded and, you know, just kind of, you know, he's been dimension hopping and I guess the Nazis were one dimension or something. Yeah. And, uh, you know, who cares? And uh, he encounters Red Dwarf and then you discover Ace is wounded and he confides to Rimmer. Um, I want you to become the new Ace Rimmer. Oh, and by the way, I also am a hard light hologram. I'm not the first Ace Rimmer. Far from it. Um, and... Then the question is, can our Rimmer really become the next Ace Rimmer? I mean, I think the idea that really Ace Rimmer is a sort of uh, 
honorary it's, title yes. that's, that's handed down is, is quite brilliant. And, and then at the end, you know, you have his like his hard light little core thing is is flown to the Ace Rimmer uh, cemetery, and you see there are so many. It r- makes a ring around the planet that looks exactly like the Red Dwarf logo. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I, I think that's clever. I mean, I, I think that's great fun. Um, and the great twist of the episode is that, you know, as you suggested, uh, our Rimmer does become Ace Rimmer. And at the end of the show, you know, I mean, not only does it begin in shocking fashion, but at the end of the show, um, you know, Rimmer takes off, uh, and the crew is convinced that their Rimmer has died, not knowing that Ace was a hologram. So they've switched places and Rimmer leaves the show, <laughs> you know, yeah. and, you know, it's, I mean, talk, I, I think it's a clever episode. It's great fun at the start. It's got a shocking ending. It's a satisfying Rimmer centric episode. Um, and I think it's frankly more fun than uh, Ace Rimmer himself returning, you know, for, to do the same stuff again. Uh, yeah, I agree. I, I think it's it, it, it plays out so well and it's such a great send off to um the character. Uh, and, and shows the growth that he's experienced through you know, sort of like through the series and they acknowledge it. Um because you think as well, like Rimmer returns, you know, in, in a later series, and we'll get to that when we get to series eight. <clears throat> but this Rimmer does not. Yeah, this mm-hmm. Rimmer, the, the Rimmer that we have lived with for you know for six six and a half series or six and a bit seasons is gone. He has gone off to become Ace Rimmer. Like he never ever returns. As far as I'm concerned, and when we get into the future it's I'll talk about it, but this Rimmer, as far as I'm concerned, never returns. He goes off and he becomes an Ace Rimmer and whether or not he survives is a different story. But he that's the thing. He goes off, I think, and I, I think that's fantastic. And I also like his transition as well. Like, you know, um mm-hmm. When the, the you know the 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 ace rumor that appears <clears throat> has to make him sort of acknowledge things and try and sort of like you know um, st- you know stand up and and be counted sort of thing and and sort of pushes him to do it um, and it, you know in the past we've even seen he sort of acknowledges it in the at the start of the episode so sort of the idea of having to face Ace again you know it's almost like sickens him but it's almost like it's almost like nervousness isn't it because he has to sort of it's that mirror. It's looking into the mirror and acknowledging that I could have been better. I could be different. And now that that mirror reflection is saying, well, you still can. That break you've been mm-hmm. looking for is is here. Take it. To do something brave. Um, and I, I, I do. I love that, that he does. Yeah, I think that's beautiful. And I, I also, I mean, uh, you were talking about kind of like his training. Um, there's sort of the implication that every Ace Rimmer kind of started in a similar way. And maybe our Rimmer is getting a little less training than others, but Mm -hmm. a lot of it is just kind of, is clearly just kind of fake it till you make it. Just go out there, have adventures, you know, you're going to die or you're not, Uh, you know, but you cannot be scared. Um, And, and, and to your point about sort of that training sequence, um, I don't think that there is ever a more loving thing that Lister does to Rimmer than helping him become Ace. Mm. So, yes. 
No, go on. Sorry, I was, yeah, I was, I agree. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of, uh, yeah, I mean, at no point does Dave say, "Oh yeah, it'd be good to be rid of you." <laughs> you know, like that's yeah. my secret motivation. <laughs> that would have been the old Red Dwarf thing. It's like, no, you know, uh, he's real. He's in on it, and he wants. He cares enough about Rimmer to. Uh, uh, to make him become his better self, you do get a little bit of uh, ribbing at uh, at the funeral, but it, it's great that uh, our Rimmer gets to kind of. I mean, I love this idea that Rimmer gets to watch his own funeral in disguise as Ace, and it's kind of like the final, you know, knife in his gut that makes him sort of realize, uh, yeah, what am I doing here? I've done nothing, you know. This is what I've always said that I wanted. I always wanted to be someone. It's time to put up or shut up. Well, I have to admit, I, I, I've always taken that eulogy that, that Lister gives um, as, as almost that. It's it, he's almost giving him that final push, isn't he? Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's that sort of like he's making sure because he he looks. You know, he's he's obviously got the wig on, so he's now got the the long hair and he's got the bomber jacket. The, the, uh, there's a great joke actually, so you know the, the silver bomber jacket that, that Crichton requests if he's got a spare, so they can cover a chicken in the oven. <laughs> um, and you can see there's nervousness there, and you know, and stuff um, about it. And I think that the eulogy that Lister gives is really sweet, and it is, although it's like I say ribbon, it is pushing him to say like you, like I say, you've got nothing here, like you have got mm-hmm. an opportunity now. Take it, go on, bugger off. Um, and it's because what it could it could have gone the other way. I mean, you know, an early, it shows a growth in Lister as well because a younger Lister might have been what somewhat resentful. Oh, you get to go off and do all this stuff, and I'm stuck on Red Dwarf as the last human sort of thing, um, or sort of Starbuck, I should say. So no, I, I, you know, and it's it still manages to have a little dig at Rimmer at the end because he gets into the the sort of the dimension hopping ship. And instead of starting it, ejects himself. Um, yeah. She just wanted to say one last goodbye, fellas. Um, <laughs> and it's 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 just done so well. Um, so, yeah, no, I, I love the, the, this episode that they get to see, you know. The one thing I would say is you say about the sort of the planet that has the um, billions, I would say, of little mini coffins of light drives, of, you know, light bees that are floating around it. It's supposed to be a moment of, um, you know, look, all these other Rimmers have done it. They've sort of stepped up. They became ace. And all I can think of is it's only been a couple of years. These guys must have been bloody useless. <laughs> yeah. No, that's a good but point. I, I mean, I, I kind I, of, especially given the Nazi thing, like I I know that ship is just hopping dimensions, but I feel as if it's hopping around in time. mm. And that's just what I feel. I mean, there's no evidence for that, but you're completely right. If it's not like hopping around through time too, and there's no, there's no indication of that. You're right. I mean, the chronologically, it's been like a uh, couple years. Uh, you know, there should not yeah. be billions of dead no. listers. And again, they, they do, they do have to go through what looks like some sort of space portal thing to get to that planet so who's to say that that poor that that planet doesn't exist in another place and time anyway and they all so those billions could actually be from multiple you know across different you know those could be ones it could include like future rumors it could even include our rumor you know at a future date you don't know um 
and it could just be all of them you know across time and space so it's a great notion though that they've all stepped up that actually rimmer mm-hmm. at, in the heart of it at his very heart will do the right thing um which i think is quite cool yeah and it, i mean and that does suggest like look as terrible as rimmer is and you know i mean we've talked about how we oscillate between sort of sympathizing with him and detesting him. Yeah. That ending suggests that, yeah, I mean, the percent that has manned up, so to speak, is about a hundred. Um, mm. That how, for all of his faults, when, when he's given that opportunity, at least by another version of himself, when Ace turns to him, I mean, if, originally Ace had turned to him and said, you know, I mean, he does try in the original Ace Rimmer episode, you know, to say like, you can do this too. Um, it tries to encourage him a little, but he's still sort of more patronizing. He's still sort of more disgusted by uh, this pathetic version of himself. Um, but this, this Ace Rimmer, who's, who's one in a line of, of holograms, confides in him has a very different approach that is um sort of you know more loving more more gentle uh and i mean we're left to believe that has worked 100 percent of the time yeah yeah and like you say i think this is definitely my favorite episode of this series as well i think it's a great episode uh and consider you know having having had the the disappointment of, of ticket to ride to mm-hmm. have this episode um, is a real lift. I'm like, oh yes, this could actually be really, really good. I mean, again, there's the there's the sort of concern of like, okay, well they're losing Rimmer, who has been one of my favourite elements of the show. So I'm not sure what's going to happen. But you know, this feels like a, a respectful payoff to the character, um, and you know, it's a solid episode. It's funny. It's got some poignant moments. Like, you know, this is this is like a, you know. Um, a really good solid episode um and so yeah i i I really enjoyed this one yeah amen i mean i i think that ejection at the end that you were talking about um while a joke i find it actually kind of touching and i I find the the sort of training sequence with the dead ace rimmer um also kind of touching too like you know our arnold is like yeah i i can't measure up and they could have underlined this more, um, but we see Ace, you know, actually hologram Ace number five billion or whatever, um, says, okay, you know, just put on the wig and if you can pretend to be me, then, you know, uh, you've got it. Uh, And and it's not clear really, it's kind of hinted that he's dying, so he doesn't really have time to train him much better. Mm. But, but there's kind of the underlying theme, like did any of these other hologrammatic listers do that much better? Um, Mm. You know, I don't know that they did. And if Rimmer, if Ace Rimmer always finds the next Ace Rimmer when he's basically dying, it's not like he had, you know, it's like, I'm going to train you for years, pad one, you know? No, I mean, so, so to me, like that ejection seat thing, it's it's a gag at, okay, he's still Rimmer, but I also find it kind of heartwarming in the sense that we have every reason to believe he will become Ace Rimmer. 
that mm. if all those others did, ours will too. And I like seeing, um, you know, it's almost like seeing an immortal, perfect character, you know, like, you know, whether it's Indiana Jones or, or whatever it is, uh, James Bond, you know, being scared, making mm. mistakes. And, you know, yeah, they're going to become immortal. They're going to be legendary. They're going to be wonderful. But they weren't always. And I yeah. think there's something very heartwarming and comforting about that. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you, you get, you know, the thing that I first mentioned, you get to see um, Arnold Rimmer's sort of first confrontation as Ace Rimmer. And again, it's sort of it's showing Dave sort of helping him and setting him up. Like, there's been a sort of a, um, a subplot of um, Lister using um, the AR machine to basically go and have sex with a, a, a you know a pretty princess in some sort of like jousting game um and then he you know then they have a, a gag of the the night that he beat using cheat codes as well which is quite funny um um comes out of the game into reality and actually confronts um ace um and he does he steps up you know he takes him on I mean, you know they have jokes about him trying to t- talk his way out of it and sort of s- slime his way out of a little bit but eventually, like, he grabs one of the bazookoids and takes out the knight. And he's, you know, he's sort of, he's like, I did it, I did it. Like, you know, he has that moment of like, I can do this, and I, you know, I, I saved the ship. I, I you know, I, um, it, it, it's quite, you know, and he rushes in to sort of say like, you know, I did it, and you find out that actually it was a setup. Like, it was Dave in a in a knight's outfit with a voice changer and, and all this other stuff, and it was blank bullets in the bazookoid stuff. It's, it's a setup, but that, but List Rimmer doesn't know that. You know, he he. It's that's that's the important thing. He thinks it's legit. He thinks it's real. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's his. You know, that's what sort of pushes him up to say, okay, I can do this. Um, and so yeah, I, I like the fact that, like you say, that that Lister actively takes a part in um, training him. You know, in sort of in secret, but like you know, he's actually wanting to do this and sort of like he's obviously collaborated with the dying Ace um, to make it happen. So. No, I think it's really cool. I think it shows their relationship. And um, again, like you say, there's a moment at the end. They share two moments, really. There's sort of like, you know, he sort of says, you know, about them going off. And he sort of he says to David how he's not sure if he's going to do it and all this other stuff. But then even, like I say, after that ejector seat um, gag, you know, he sort of says goodbye to Crichton and the cat. And then he sort of says, uh, he just sort of grabs him on the arm. He's like, bye, Davy boy. But he doesn't say it as Ace. He says it as Rimmer. Um, And that, to me, is sort of like a camaraderie. They they have pissed each other off for years. They've annoyed (laughs) each other. They've they've weaseled at each other and needled. And it's sort of like, you know, but finally, after all these years, there's sort of like, I don't know, it's an acknowledgement of like, do you know what? They are going to miss each other. And I, I just think that's quite a touching moment before he finally goes off. Yeah, that's a very good point. And I, I think it's better that he can't say something in character, right? Mm. Because if he if you have to have that moment, then either it becomes kind of like mushy and, and you either have it be too mean or too sentimental um, or there's not time. You know, you've got to run into conflict and you don't have time to have those final words here. He can say it, but he can't be too elaborate about it or he'd break character. Um, and, you know, I think that's 
that's a good point. And I think, you know, uh, Barry is wonderful in this episode. Mm. Um, you know, we've talked about how he can play these different characters with these different versions of Rimmer with Panache. Here he gets to play both our Rimmer and Ace, but he also manages to convey our Rimmer pretending to be Ace and doing it awkwardly. And I think that is amazing. You know, there's nothing harder to do, I think, in acting than have a character like uh, pretend to be a bad actor and still have you believe that it's the original person and not think, oh, that's an actor I'm watching. You know, you know what I'm saying? Mm. And and it just feels so natural. You, you just totally feel that is our Arnold struggling to impersonate Ace. I just got have to think that is so hard to do and never for a second do I doubt it. No, yeah. I mean, yeah, he, he is so good in this. And we've sort of, again, we sort of like, you know, um, bigged him up quite a lot in the past and stuff. And I do, I think he's a great actor. Um, and some of the stuff he does in this is fantastic. Um, but you're right, there's a moment where he sort of he talks to, um, you know, he's dressed as Ace and he's got the sort of the hair on and the, the jacket and the glasses and that. And um, it's when he's asked for the, uh, Crichton asks for the jacket to sort of to boil a chicken. <laughs> uh, and he's been all sort of cool, but then he loses his temper. Um, and you can see him sort of like, you know, he has to regain his composure and sort of work with it and, and try and pull the moment back. And he, he sort of manages it. And um, it's, uh, yeah, he is. He, he, he just sort of, it's clearly like very well thought out. And I, I almost think at this point, you know, I don't know what they thought was going to happen after this, but you can sort of feel that Chris Barry's saying goodbye to the character as well. Like he wants to go out and have this character pay off. Um, and, you know, I think um, yeah, characters come and go from TV shows. It's what happens. Actors have to leave. But I think this is one of the ones I find most satisfying, um, of, you know, of, 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 of characters leaving TV shows. Yeah, I agree. It's got to be be up there uh, and sort of fun. It's a little strange that it's the second episode, um, mm. you know, and I, and I know Barry sort of, I mean, he said, I guess it was because of the pace of the previous season that he had said, like, he was only willing to be in like three episodes. And so it's these first two. And then it's one later where he appears mostly in flashback. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's you were talking about how disappointing that first episode is. And um, I find it, you know, curiously disappointing or puzzlingly disappointing, <laughs> but I agree it, it doesn't really work. Um, and then you get to this and it, it's so strange to have the second episode be so strong and also mm. be, you know, what show has done a farewell episode, as you say, let alone one this good, that's episode two out of eight. Yeah, yeah. It's I mean, it's brave, isn't it? I mean, that's the thing. Like, you know, they could have had. I mean, when we get to blue, sort of the the flashbacky kind of episode, I have sort of mixed feelings about it. But it's an interesting uh, combination of how they do the setup. But they clearly wanted because they wanted to give. You know the the, the ideas. They clearly wanted to give Kachansky a, a decent run, um, at coming into the show. So. Um, yeah, the decision made second episode in, but you know, um, ticket to ride disappointment, but stoke me a clipper. 
Um, no, very happy with this episode. And I think you know, it's, like you say, it sort of it stands up amongst some of the classics as well. I agree. Um, but then we move into so Rimmer's gone. You know, we're we're down down to three uh, Crichton, Cat, and Lister, um, and we enter a, a, a Robberus, um, which is another transitional sort of episode, and and again. Um, what, what follow, following Stoke Me a Clip? It's never going to be as good, but this this is another episode where it has moments of, of I really enjoy, and then again as a whole, I sort of struggle with some of the leaps of logic that it makes. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> um, that really sort of like almost like head scratching. Um, so. Yes, we'll get to those. Uh, but the idea is obviously that the, 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 at some point there's a temporal or a, a portal rip between our dimension and another dimension uh, on um, Starbug, and they find that there's, there's a, a bridge that takes them to an alternate version of themselves, and they meet uh, a hologrammatic version of Lister, um, a, like a grumpy version of Cat. Um, <laughs> um, uh, uh, you know... Um, a, a gold version of Croydon, and instead of Rimmer, they've got Christine Kachansky. Um, and this is in fact, I've got I forget it's Annette. Um, no, I forget her name. Um, but she's a very different Christine Kachansky, um, being introduced uh, at this point, um, which is again. Um, you know, is a choice they're making. She was obviously not a, a, a main character. Chloe Annette, sorry, um, is being introduced as uh, as Christine Kachansky. Now, what are your thoughts on this episode and this version of Christine Kachansky? Yeah, um, I, w- I want to get to your thoughts on, on the difference between her and others. I mean, I, I in the earlier appearances, I am, I feel like this is a good idea for an episode Mm. that does not work on almost any level. Um, You know, it does have its moments. I think the Kachansky stuff, the flashbacks of sort of like her reality uh, are, are fascinating. They might be the highlight of the episode for me that, you know, this alternate reality Kachansky, um, you know, well, first of all, you find out that apparently another retcon Right. Like, uh, you know, Arnold's romantic past earlier here, we find out that Kachansky dated uh, Dave and Mm. they broke up. And that was why, you know, Dave went away. He came back and he had the cat. Um, And in Kachansky's reality, she hid it and kind of took it. Uh, There is a funny moment where she puts it in a uh, disintegration microwave thing, uh, you know, and then you see this cute cat uh, and, uh, you know, can't uh, bring herself to do it. So that's why she was sentenced to stasis. And, um, you know, Holly brought back um, Dave to keep her sane, presumably, which we'll get into later. Um, But I mean, so I find those flashbacks work. I mean, but you know, the, the sort of like temporal rift thing is not good. That sort mm. of like blue tube that they're in that you can just, it just kind of like tears at will. And then you fall through a void and, you know, it's funny that they, they ultimately rescue her and get her back to their reality 
by harpooning her in the leg and pulling her up. You know, that's a bit funny, but it's absurd. I mean, like how far, how long has she been falling through time and space that they can still hit her? I mean, I don't know. I mean, there's, there's a lot like that that I just, I just don't like. Um, Well, yeah. I mean, the thing about this episode that sort of, I say, well, there's a couple of things that really bother me, but the fact is that sort of like once they've got this 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 rift or this tunnel between the two versions of the ship, um, they they sort of make a real concerted effort to highlight how sort of like our version, the version we've been watching, is the lesser version of the crew. You know what I mean? You've sort of like you meet the hologrammatic version of mm. Lister, and he's for whatever reason he's, he's more sort of like you know he's more together, he's more sophisticated. You know, the cat sort of seems, I don't know, he's meant to be more intelligent. He just comes across as grumpy and mean, to be honest. But <laughs> they're, they're made out to be the more competent version of the crew, aren't they? Right. Yet when she falls yet when she falls into space, the, the void of between the two dimensions or whatever, like, it's the incompetent and silly crew that saves her. And she calls on to save her. Um, yes. And it's like, well, surely her version of the cat, and he's hard light, you know, so he's a hard light hologram. It's her version of Dave. So how have they not got a harpoon gun or something else? I mean, they're the ones that gave them the damn harpoon gun. It, it, I don't know, it just feels... It feels odd. It feels sloppy. It does feel um, sloppy, yeah. And so, well, so does the end. We'll get to the end. Bloody hell. Um, but th- that's what this episode yeah. feels like. It's sloppy. Is is, But however... As you said, those flashbacks are interesting. Like you know, the alternate version of what could what could have happened. So, is she? Because it opens up all kinds of questions. Okay, well, you know, we had uh, Cloister the stupid. So, is there a you know <laughs> uh, a Karansky the stupid or something like that? I don't know. Um, Good point. Of like you know, is she the sort of the 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 you know, is the is cat like he is because actually she was the the god character, uh, you know. <laughs> It, it makes things. It, it opens up a different version of things, but which is never sort of explored. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It just feels a bit. But as a Kachansky, she feels more like someone that would be a navigation officer on a massive, massive ship <laughs> compared yeah, to you the find previous her more version. Yeah, I mean, one of the things we always said about sort of, you know, well, I always said, you know, um, was the original Kachansky, like, you know, she's very pretty and she's sort of, you know, but they never played her up as being someone who's an officer. You know, she's supposed to be an officer, but she she always seemed to get played off as a bit of a good time girl. You know, she's out dancing, she's doing this. Well, no, no, she's she's a navigation officer for a a ship that's three miles, you know, what is it? No, it's five miles wide and uh, long and three miles wide. Like, this thing's massive. She needs to be, you know, trained in all kinds of things to be able to do what she does. So, so this, you know, this version of Kachansky feels more in line with what the expectations of that role would be on a ship. Yeah, that's a very good point. I mean, one that I hadn't really considered. Um, I did notice that. I mean, I, I, I think one of the weakest elements of this script is the Gelfs that they need someone to attack while they're in this, you know, time tube thing, um, you know, which is not great CGI. And, you know, I guess if you fire at the tube thing, it causes a rupture, but it doesn't cause anyone to fall down or fall. I mean, 
it's so incoherent and and literally um you know they're talking to their alternate selves and then you know and then uh is it Crichton who just says like oh it must be like the gelves are attacking you know like yeah. where did this yeah. come from and then later on when they're returning they've reestablished this severed uh time tube thing and uh they've gone back into it to return Kachansky and then literally the same thing happens again. <laughs> they say, oh, no, the gulfs are back. And they fire and cause another, you know, another uh, rift to appear just between the two groups. Where are these gulfs coming from? You know, I mean, yeah. it's funny that it's, you know, it's the, uh, uh, you know, again, like the we we're talking about continuity. Like, it's funny that it's the uh, same gulf that Lisp- Lister was married to. Um, in polymorph too, yeah, but right. I, I agree because it's it they appear, but they also seem to disappear just as easily. Like, yeah. <laughs> you're no longer needed for the plot. Thank you very much. You can leave. And um, uh, yeah, I mean th- this ep- this episode has a clear mission. It's right. We need to insert Christine Kachansky into our Red Dwarf crew. Make it happen, and and you know everything else sort of seems. Um, Superfluous, to be perfectly honest. And so again, going back to that sort of like um, slapdash, it's almost like right. We've got this one mission to achieve. We've done that. Everything else can just be a bit rushed, or we can sort of force it together. Um, I mean, the, the episode's called um, a robberus or our rob or Ross, um, as, a, as in the Scouse accent. But that whole underlying thing. So the other thing that sort of sits underneath all this is that it was, you know, it was clearly it, this again is continuity because it was stated in a much earlier episode, I think, in series two, that Lister was found in a box under a pool table in the Egbeth Arms. Like that is that's been stated. That's fact. And then you've got this thing that sort of you know that's raised again, and you get this whole thing around um, the it's like an in vitro tube. You know, so Kachansky's eggs are in there. You need list of sperm. They want to create this baby. And then they have this whole thing of sort of like all of a sudden Lister figures out once he's sort of been combined that he is his own, his own dad and Kachansky is his girlfriend and his mum. And they've got to go back in time to, to place the, you know, this, this child under the table, the pool table, um, uh, and the Egbeth arms so that he can grow up to become himself and all this other stuff. And it's they have this idea, this sort of that they, they've clearly got this idea. This is a sci-fi concept of Lister going through this time, this loop, you know, this idea of robberus. He needs to have completed this this cycle to place himself under the the pool table at the Egbeth arms so that there will always be a, a last a last human. But it never pays off ever ever again. <laughs> it doesn't. It, it doesn't pay off anything in the episode or any of the series. It's it, it, how he reaches that conclusion. Right. Is he? He literally sees a box with a, a robber us on, and he's like, "It wasn't our robber Ross." I'm thinking this was thirty years ago, and you were a baby, and someone told you it had our rob or Ross written on it. Like, you didn't keep the flipping box. This is this this whole thing with this baby is infuriating to me. <laughs> it's so ridiculous, um, and it, well, because it, it's got no logic or no no no. no. Um, uh, I don't know. I don't know what your thoughts are. But... 
Well, I mean, you're right. It, it, I wouldn't say it's as in, it's confusing to me. It yeah. is not satisfying. Um, you know, I mean, not only that, but the box that says Ouroboros is just like, you know, Ouroboros batteries. Mm. It's not even like Kachansky's presence triggers them to discover this. They're just like, oh, well, we need to, I found this box. We need some batteries. There's no reason why that wouldn't have happened in the previous, you know, years. You know, if that's the only thing he needs, why does, why is that memory triggered in this episode? I hate, I I mean, I feel like, first of all, I hate stories in which somebody replaces themselves in the timeline. I mean, I like deterministic uh, time travel stories, as you know, but Mm -hmm. I really have a an antipathy towards stories where like somebody replaces their younger self somehow and i think okay each loop you're like 20 years older you understand this right you don't magically de-age when you replace i mean so he is the product of incest with himself every yep. time this loop repeats he's getting more you know uh inbred more, more, i mean yeah this you know and then as you say this is never mentioned again he goes right on to romancing kachansky who he knows is his mom in the next episode um and i think at the end like it feels like it could be something like i i it's the kind of thing where if you don't think about it you think oh i'm not really clear on how that worked but yeah, okay, they're going for something smart. But no, they haven't thought about it at all. It, it it just does not work. It could be really good, and it just feels like they didn't even try. Yeah. It's so tacked on, and, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't pick, it doesn't seem to pick anything up, or pay anything off, or wrap anything up. I, I don't know. It just feels like, say, it's almost like, if this was a film, if this was like a feature film went out and this was this was in there, you'd think, all right, that's from a previous draft or a previous writer and they've just forgotten to take it out. Or, you know, it's an idea that sort of stuck around. It might be something like that. It just doesn't... If any, you're right. I mean, one of the weird things is, as you say, it makes, it makes the relationship after this incredibly icky. <laughs> yeah. You know, in many ways. Um, hey, mom. <laughs> yeah. And and so, it, it it could have been interesting. It's an idea, but like it doesn't seem to do anything. Like, you know, yes, he was abandoned as a child and left under the table. But um, it, the, the sort of like I always felt the point of that was was that you know was this person this person who was abandoned and, and you know and, and raised through foster families and all this other stuff. Um, although it must have been adopted because at some point he refers to his um, his nan. In a pretty in the very first season, um, but um, against someone who did have parents, but they were just crappy parents, and he's all you know. So you got these two sort of comparisons between Rimmer and and, and Lister, but yeah, this this just feels like needless sort of like character development that just doesn't go anywhere. It's bizarre. Um, and well, just makes not only me that. Like... No, yeah. Well, not only that, but I mean, the idea that he's somehow like. And he gives voice to this as he's leaving himself. The idea that he is the last human and he's always going to be the last human because he's in this loop is like, you know, it's a kind of clever idea in the sense that like, like Moffat, Doctor Who clever, right? Like mm. that's a smart idea. 
maybe bother to come up with a story around that. Um, but that doesn't really make sense. I mean, when he's left in the box, he's not the last human. He becomes the last human and then creates himself. That doesn't mean that he's eternally the last human. The date of his death, from that point on in the universe, there's no more humans. You have not secured a future for humanity by creating a time loop of your own creation. And, yeah. and even then, him dropping off the box, it says 18 months later. Why yeah. 18 months? It, I mean, this is a, you know, did Kachansky have this baby? Was this like, create, uh, presumably that child is the product of this test tube thing that's that's never mentioned again. Are we to believe that nine months from then that was put into Kachansky and she gestated this child and then Lister said, oh, you know, thanks for the baby. I'm going to take it back in time. <laughs> what? You know, I don't understand anything about this. Yeah, no, it, it makes no sense. Because again, like I say, so maybe it took him nine months to convince her. But one of the, the points she... The point she, the point she I, makes... Trust me, you're my mom. Can you imagine nine months of this shit? (laughs) All right, just take the damn thing. Leave me alone. But you're right, because, I mean, she makes a point in in the episode of, you know, I'm not ready yet, but at some point I want to have children, Um, which in itself, you know, I I question um, in the situation that we're in, being, you know, stuck in deep space. But anyway, um, she says, I want to have children. And then so she actually gets the opportunity to have a child, but then gives it up <laughs> to have it sent back in time to become Dave Lister. Like, I don't understand how that works. Because you then go on to it, and we'll go into the next episode. So I'm Because this is the problem. Like, it says 18 months later. So where in continuity does that happen after... Like, it must happen before the end of this series. And I'm going to get picky because this is why it pisses me off. I'm getting, I get annoyed. Right, by it right, right. It clearly happens after the next episode because the next episode is all about her settling in and all this other stuff. And then you obviously got this stuff, but it has to happen before the end of the series because by the end of the series, they have found um, they get back onto Red Dwarf, right, um, to a degree, and obviously that goes into season eight. So between, so there must be, I don't know how long it's been, but between series episode three and episode eight, several <laughs> years must take place. Well, you know, like the, the, yeah, of course. And But remember, uh, we ended with a cliffhanger in which Lister was pregnant at the end of season two. There's something yeah. about the show and pregnancy that there are multiple pregnancies that just are not shown. (laughs) (laughs) It just, it just, but it's one of those things that, because the whole point is, I mean, it's to boil it down. Lister figures it out and then runs back into the sort of the time dimension tube, whatever you want to call it and shouts, wait up, Chrissy, you're my mom. Wait, (laughs) mom. And she stops to say, like, what, what are you talking about? And it's then that the Gelfs attack and she falls through the, the gap in space. God. And then they save her. So it's like that's the mechanism that exists for her to exist, to be brought into our reality. And I'm just like, there must have been a better way. 
must there's gotta must be a better been. way. Because this makes this this episode is probably the most. Um, there, there, again, there are moments in it that are fine, but it's one of the most infuriating episodes. And I know it's only a sitcom, but from a continuity point of view, like I'm not a continu- I'm not a continuity obsessive. You know what I mean? I don't mind giving some leeway, but mm-hmm. this one just takes the mick. Like this is asking you not to care <laughs> about even the continuity within this series. You know this block of episodes, or even within this own episode, it's just terrible, (laughs) infuriating. (laughs) Yeah, I mean it makes no sense. Um, And you know, also like if you have been messed up about the fact that you were left under a pool table, yeah. Even if you realize that's yourself, are you going to be quite so quick to say like, "Thanks for popping out that baby"? That's me, by the way. I'm going to. Put myself under a pool table. Um, that seems strange. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I keep thinking about like you know we were talking about the previous episode and and like how how careful it is to give Arnie a a, a good send off. Right, mm-hmm. it feels very measured. The decisions are right. They took time with that script. Um, yeah, probably Barry had some input. Uh, but they took time with that script. Now this is the next episode and this should be, you know, if that's the goodbye uh, Rimmer, this is the hello Kachansky. This is yeah. just phoned in and phoned into a remarkable degree. It's got a couple good ideas, but there's no elaboration. And you'd think that given that you're going to re- introduce Kachansky, and you and you make an excellent point about how she's more believable as a navigator here. She actually seems competent. Um, but, you know, given that you're going to do that, this should be like the ultimate Kachansky episode. This should be mm. like, you know, let's, what is it that has driven Dave to be focused on Kachansky? What is that about? That's always felt sort of neurotic on his part, sort of sad, it's a little less sad now that there's the retcon that they were in a relationship and, and mm. Kachansky broke up, but Kachansky just seems to have almost arbitrarily broken up. Um, she doesn't seem to have taken this very seriously. Dave seems to have taken this, this super seriously. Um, you know, what, what was this about? What, what is the longing for Kachansky about? What is the essence of Kachansky? The last episode gave us the essence of Rimmer there seems to be no equal weight here or attempt to explore any of that. It's just, as you say, like, well, let's have some Gelf's attack. Cause the point is uh, we need Kachansky on the ship now. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> it it's, it's just, it, yeah. I, I honestly think this is the worst episode in this series. Um, and I'd say one of the worst episodes in the, in the, the whole show. Um, it just, like you say, it's just careless. Um, and the, the the one of the things I find so frustrating with it is, is that Chloe Annette is actually really good. Mm-hmm. You know, I think she's. I think, like you say, she's not. She's not funny, funny. She's not Chris Barry. You know, great uh, in that role, but she's doing something different, and she does provide a different dynamic. And she has several interactions with, um, with Crichton, with Robert Llewellyn that I actually quite like. You know, sort of. She's she does sort of bounce off him in particular pretty well, um, but yeah, this they just piss away an opportunity on this one. 
It, it just infuriates me. Yeah, agreed. Um, even like uh, when she gets the Gelf ship to crash, you know, uh, the second time the Gelf ship attacks, Cat, you know, that's done. Plot that plot's over, mm. and then we wrap up that scene by Cat just saying out of nowhere, "Pretty snazzy," <laughs> like yeah. You, I mean, and it feels so off. Even little things like that feel so off in this episode. Yeah, it, 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 the, I, I honestly think this comes down to that they were trying to do something different. They're trying to do this sort of more theatrical feel aren't they you know they've moved away from a studio audience and i I just don't think they know how to manage it completely um and so they're trying to do something a bit more adventurous stuff i just i don't know this is just where ticket to ride felt uneven and had like you know iffy tone this this is just phoned in is probably the best it's best way to describe it it's just yeah it, it just it just feels like you say they were like right we've got on the ship hopefully you know having Kachansky around is going to be enough of a satisfactory thing for some of the fans um, we won't worry about everything else too much right now we'll try and in fact we'll try and resolve a lot of this stuff in duck soup all the relationship we'll try and resolve it in the next episode um, this right. could have been and should have been a two parter yeah. you know they could have been, they could have developed they, if they, if you combined some of the elements of duck soup with the next episode with a mm-hmm. you could have had a satisfying two-parter that would have um, explored all that kind of stuff and could mm-hmm. have you know un- had the underpinning of the um, the Dave Lister loop as well um, but it, it's just rushed and nah well one one <laughs> final insult on my part to this episode. Um, Mm. You know how much, you know, I love future echoes. I love the first two Mm. episodes. Um, And, and that gets referenced, you know, in these two, two series explicitly. And, you know, future echoes has almost become a trope of the show. Well, you know, here we have 18 months later, right? Mm. We have this mystery pregnancy that, as you said, doesn't fit really into the continuity or must, nine months must occur between episodes. Um, And uh, then you have the idea that uh, in most of, in a lot of these future versions that we've seen, including future echoes, one of the things that characterized them was somehow Christine Kachansky was alive Mm. here. You're doing that. You're like moving closer to those timelines or those realities. Wow, that's ambitious. I love mm. that idea. And then you immediately invalidate that, not only by having, you know, this kid who is himself, but then they can't have those two kids yeah. because that, you know, that would be inbreeding with your having sex with your mom, yeah. which is then, a, you know, I mean, it's sort of mind boggling to be doing this like incredibly ambitious thing. What could be really ambitious about this episode of introducing Kachansky. You remember that second episode we're taking, I know we've invalidated it and we we've done other futures, but we're taking a step toward, uh, you know, that depiction of the future or something mm. instead that's instantly invalidated for this Ouroboros gimmick that just doesn't work. Yes, I agree. Totally agree. Massive misstep. Um, 
but we we get the next episode. The next episode, Duck Soup, which is um, um, is the first sort of Christine Kachansky as part of the crew um, kind of episode. Um, and I assume the episode, I assume the title is supposed to be. Is it Duck Soup? Is it a Marx Brothers? Yeah. Um, so it. I don't think that really pay. Is it, does that pay off in the no. episode? I, I, no. Okay. I, I, <laughs> no. Okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, this one sort of again, you know, it, this one starts to explore some of the relationship stuff. Um, she seems to be quite content, not content, but she seems to have accepted that there is no way of getting back to the to her version of reality. Um, fine. Um, but you do get to explore that. Uh, explore. Crichton's jealousy of having uh, mm. Lister's um, uh, previous lover on board, um, and yeah, so you do get some some interesting moments of that. So again, I think that this is a step up from a robbery, which isn't isn't hard. But um, yeah, you know, they end up in the sort of the duck system of the ship, which again, sort of, you know, they've they've now converted the fact that Starbug is now much bigger. Um, what are your thoughts on duck soup? Well, I liked, uh, if you remember, like, I really loved the lift in earlier episodes. I mean, later on, we're going to see another lift. We're going to see, like, a monorail system, you know, in the mm-hmm. in the rebuilt Red Dwarf. I love that stuff. I love, you know, anything that acknowledges that massiveness. So I like the duct idea. I think I'm a fan of shows taking the time to have these kinds of episodes of sort of like, you know, the aftermath episode, the transition episode, where you don't just try to pretend all of that was, uh, you know, we're back to the new status quo, yuck, yuck, you know. Um, yeah. And I think that stuff works. I think the idea that Crichton is the impetus for the plot because he's jealous and he puts the ship in peril um, makes sense. I think that's a smart idea for a plot. I like the, the Crichton dynamics. I still, I I still think it doesn't work largely. I mean, I like the stuff between, you know, uh, with Crichton. I like the stuff with Kachansky. Um, but it, but it, you know, it feels a little off. It feels like, you know, so much depends on like, they're flushing out the ducks with water. Now they're, you know, now they're drawing off the ducks, the ducks with uh, wind. Now there's more water coming. The entire ship has been shut down. And the very next scene, they say, you know, oh, the ship is shut down, you know, which is why they got to go through these ducks to begin with is, you know, the power's off. Um, and obviously um, Crichton has engineered all of this, but, you know, how did they get back to, you know, at the end, they get rushed by this water deliberately to try to mm-hmm. get back to the place where they can turn back on the power. Somehow they're right back in Lister's quarters. I don't know how that's possible. There's yeah. just a lot of time in those ducks. And, and I like the conversations. I just don't think that it is much better than the previous episode, but I, it still feels like it hasn't quite gelled yet for me. <laughs> No, I agree. I think, you know, um, I like that, again, I like, you know, uh, Robert Llewellyn gets to do his stuff. Crichton's actually really funny in this episode. There's some, you know, some moments of 
him being incredibly whiny, um, which is funny. Sort of like you like her more than me. Um, That's very good. Yeah, <laughs> describing Kachansky as having all all the inny and outy bits and stuff. And again, I like <laughs> the fact. That, I like the fact that this acknowledges. Um, you know, um, they do and they do call it out that he acknowledges that sort of like you know she's got all this additional laundry and all this other stuff and like. Dave Lister calls out, he's like, well, you spent all this time on the Nova 5. And he's like, you killed the crew, Crichton. Um, <laughs> you know, sort of, they acknowledge that he has looked after women in the past, but he's clearly sort of like, just dropped that knowledge. It's gone from his, his you know, his memory banks, whatever. So, I like the fact that they're not, they're not ignoring that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, there's some, again, good callbacks, some good, some good, some good scenes. Um and again, I like some of the conversations where, like you say, you you do it. You know, Kachansky does try and sort of put Dave at ease when you realise he's got claustrophobia. Um, again, something that's never come up in the show previously. I'm pretty, <laughs> sure there's been, I'm pretty sure there's been scenarios where that would have come up. Um, like actually, like when he was trapped in a chimney breast in uh, Meltdown, um, mm. and stuff like that. So, not being nitpicky. Um, but yeah, there's some, the conversation is good. Uh, there's some good jokes, you know. Um, every now and then, sort of, I think again, Cat has some good moments when he's sort of like um, talking to Dave. Um, but again, like I say, the 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 premise is fine, and like I say, the dialogue and the sort of the relationship building is actually pretty good. Um, it's, I think again, they, they try and cram a lot into half an hour um you know they almost like you said they almost want to reach the new status quo by the end of this episode don't they they want to address mm-hmm. things very quickly and they're like right we introduced her in the last episode let's address the status quo so by the end of this episode we're done and we can sort of jump onto the next adventure they don't they still want to sort of balance out the status quo a bit um but that's what this feels like i mean it's a bottle episode again isn't it really they're very much sort right. of stuck in a a, a single, it's a small crew stuck in a single uh, area, um, and it's fine. It's not bad. It's just a bit, um, yeah. I don't know. It's Life fine. Foster. Yeah, it's just a bit. It's just fine, isn't it? Like it does what it needs to, right? Um, and you it's learn a lot like. about. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I like the fact you get to learn stuff about Kachansky. You know, she went to sort of cyber school. Um, you know, so she never really went to real school, but she had all these sort of like you know these things, and you get to realize the fact that like yeah, she's she is clearly like you said she's clearly intelligent, she's she's competent, but actually she has been spoiled, like she's used to being able to do certain things, so to have those things taken away, then to be sort of stuck in a room, to sleep in a room with pipes that make infuriating noises and stuff, um, you know, is is understandable, so. I like the fact you get to learn more about her and her, and her as a character. Um, but again, it just feels like very pedestrian. It's, it's very sort of... Um, what's what I'm looking for? Like you said, sort of workman-like. But, um, By the numbers? Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like, right, we've got to roll out this information. You know, um, We've got to sort of... You know, we, we, you need to know the characters. We need to give her more information about her and her dynamic with the crew so that we can move on. And that's what it feels like. You know, it's, it's very sort of just very exp- um, exposition heavy, isn't it? It's sort of like, 
well, here's here's who I am, and here's something else about <laughs> my past, and here's something else. And, and you know, in some parts it works, and others it doesn't. And um, yeah, workmanlike. It's just sort of again, I'm just yeah. It, it feels it like consi- yeah, it hasn't really uh, gelled. I mean, mm. you know, but there's other stuff like you know, at the end. I mean, it starts with. Uh, you know, Kachansky unable to sleep because, you know, the pipes are making all these strange sounds and she's got a catalog of sort of, you know, mm-hmm. the sequence they go in and it's driving her crazy. And, you know, Crichton says like, oh, uh, uh, I, I think he says, you know, Lister tried to sleep there and couldn't. Um, and then at the end, uh, no huge surprise, but I mean, at the end, uh, you know, Crichton... Uh, is sort of talking with her and, and sort of annoys her again, says this was like your rite of passage again, kind of like, okay, I get it. Um, and then she makes Crichton say what the pipe said as she hits yeah. Crichton with a wrench, the way she did hit the way she hit the pipes. And the implication is that Crichton was making those sounds trying to drive her crazy, but they never say that. She yeah. never says, like, I recognize your voice. You know, she just makes him say what the pipe said. And it's like, is she just saying that so she can hit him with a wrench? Or that's It's, it's funny because I, uh, this is the first time, watching this time, I, I was going, does she think that he set, he set her up and was making these noises? Because I've always, always taken it as she has just made him say those noises so she can, so she can, Hit him. That's it. <laughs> That's and I was. So I've always felt weird about the ending, like because even because the whole thing was was his fault. Like he set it up. So if she did sort of just you know hit him with a spanner like, in a jokey way, it would have. I could understand it and it would work. Mm-hmm. But adding that thing about the pipes in is weird. Um. Yeah. Yeah, um, I was confused. Yeah. Again, it, uh, watching these episodes. And like you say again, apart from sort of stoke me a clipper, there's I'm now understanding a little bit more about the relationship between the two creators, um, and how they would work together, and you know how it all worked because, um, it, it feels like together they worked incredibly well, and they you know they hit like a um, you know a pitter patter of, of, of repartee between the characters and the you know the, the way things worked. And without those two together, this is is missing something, isn't it? That's the problem. Everything we've said so far is missing something. And so, again, this is just another one that just feels like it's missing something. Um, it's fine by the end of it. Okay, Kachansky's now part of the crew. We can move on. That's how I, that's how I feel about it. Well, I mean, of course, that's where we were at the end of the previous episode, too. We just, you know... Yeah. I mean... It, it, Do- doesn't progress anything. Doesn't seem to do anything. I mean, it's sort of, <laughs> you know, it, it sort of like you say it expands. Uh, it doesn't even expand uh, Lister and Kachansky's relationship. Like, you know, he tries to do some nice things for her, um, mm-hmm. which is nice, right. fine, but it's no different to how he felt about her previously or what you would have done. We haven't learned anything new, and it's not even that funny. So it just sort of feels, yeah. Well, I mean, who hasn't? Um put a glass of wine on a bath that you drew in order to have sex with their mom. I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, can we let's let's talk just real briefly about that conversation in the duct where um, where Lister's having claustrophobia and she says, um, you know, my hologrammatic uh, boyfriend was gay. Mm-hmm. My hologrammatic Lister. And, you know, as, as you pointed out at the at the opening, that Lister sort of acts like he's offended that she might think that he's gay, too. Um, and, and then the show sort of shifts from this kind of like homophobic moment to both of them, like acknowledging that it's good to have gay friends. Right. Um, yeah. Which is like, oh, OK, you know, this is very sort of like 90s gay friendly. Right. Like it's OK to have somebody freak out at the possibility of being gay. But, you know, it's good to have gay friends. Right. I mean, this is, you know, that is this kind of weird state. And it is kind of funny. Lister says, you know, he had a, oh yeah, I had a gay friend, you know, uh, uh, Ben's Bob, <laughs> you know, of course I would, I wouldn't call him ben that in, to his face, you know, yeah. only behind his back. Um, you know, so that's kind of funny. Um, but, uh, you know, and Lister realizes that, uh, you know, she, um, you know, made the gay stuff up. I'm not sure how he realizes that. It's sort of like Ouroboros, like he just kind of realizes it all of a sudden. Um, like, oh, you're being nice to me. You must just have made all this stuff up to get me distracted. Um, but, you know, this starts to get into like, you know, this is probably the first time where I think, okay, so if her Holly made, um, brought back her boyfriend, with mm-hmm. whom she'd broken up to keep her sane. What does that mean about Rimmer? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, because presumably, uh, Holly could have brought back Kachansky for Dave. I mean, in fact, yeah. Dave well, laments that, right, yeah. in the first episode, right? So... And, and and we're told that this is to keep him sane. Okay. Well, you know, but uh, in a parallel universe, Holly, who presumably doesn't have some kind of massively different programming, right? The point is like it's a, mm. you know, there's a, is a tweak on the current timeline. It's not, you know, uh, the fundamentals haven't changed. Uh, brought back a love interest who was a difficult, fraught relationship but was a love interest. Um, does that not imply that, you know, maybe there is some kind of, um, if not overtly sexual chemistry between Lister and Rimmer, um, some component of that? It's, it's possible. I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? It's sort of, um, you know, yeah, you're right. Cause he goes back to that first episode. Um, Holly's justification for bringing Brett River is that well, you shared the most number of words, the most you know, number of conversation with Rimmer. Um, and you know, even Lister points out, yeah, but half of that was me winding him up, and the other half was him telling me off. So, you know, surely there was other people, then there was Peter Cernan and all these others that you could have brought back. Um, and so, yeah, surely that the same conversation could have been held that she, she did not. There wouldn't have been. Oh, you had the the most number of, you know, the most dialogue with Dave Lister, like that doesn't make any <laughs> sense, does it? So, right. Um, 
yeah, so what justification really is it for, for bringing back Lister in that other environment? Like, she had what was her other boyfriend, she, Tim, the chef. Um, but it's clearly shown like she's got other friends on the ship. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know. It's an interesting one. I think, you know, it's. Um, we, we can question it from that point of view, but for, if I'm perfectly honest, it'll come down to they didn't think about it a great deal in the show. <laughs> yeah. What I'm saying is we need some uh, Lister Rimmer slash fiction. <laughs> I bet if you were to look out there, it'll be there. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> there's, there's a couple of, you know, uh, fan clubs um, for Red Dwarf across from both sides uh, of, you know, of the, uh, the ocean. I I am not convinced that this doesn't exist. Uh, and for you know, I'm not, listeners. I don't really want to be sent it. <laughs> um, <laughs> We're not going to do I, this research. Yeah, but yeah. <laughs> um, but I would not be surprised if it didn't exist uh, in somewhere. In fact, let's if you, if you do take it, <laughs> we're, we're about to get it in in the next episode anyway. To be honest, right? That's um, true. So you go from duck soup to blue. And in blue, uh, the thing we were addressing here is the fact that um, Lister is, you know, grieving the loss of Rimmer, um, and you know he misses him, or you know he's obviously been a big part of his life for sort of many years. And this, I, I do like some of the flashbacks in this, where sort of it talks about some of the stuff they get up to on the ship, and and you know breaking into people's lockers and all that kind of stuff. Um, and you do get this. There's a dream sequence, which is, is, is found to be. Is, it ends up being a dream sequence, where Lit, uh, Rimmer comes back from sort of you know gallivanting across the different dimensions, and um, Lister and, and Rimmer share a, a passionate kiss. Um, yeah, it, that's what I'm talking out. about. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, trying to think, I'm trying to think what you'd call it because you know with 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 Spock and Kirk, it's called Spurk, isn't it, and that sort of thing. So you you want that. We've got to think of what it'd be called. Uh, Limmer? Well, I'm not sure. Uh, Rista? No. <laughs> um, but yeah, and, and, and so the thing is that they have to address this sort of grieving that he's lost a friend or he feels like he has lost some or something. Um, and you get the two approaches. You get sort of like uh, Kachansky gets sort of talks him through it and Crichton presents him with a virtual reality um, ride. Um <laughs> at the end of the show which um, what I will say is this episode, this is where I'm saying this this episode I have mixed feelings about um, because um, the whole stuff of, again it's this sort of idea that this, this episode jumps into that relationship between Rimmer and Lister and they have been quite dependent on each other for a number of years at this point so I do find that interesting however several episodes before you've actually sort of bigged up Rimmer and you've sort of shown that he can step up and he can be that, you know, the ace character, given the right motivation and the right opportunities, he could do it. But then they want to top off this episode by showing again what an obnoxious git he can be as well. Uh Um, And it's funny. I mean, I I love that whole sort of, the whole thing of sort of the song and everything is is brilliant. Yeah. I don't know. Does it undermine what they did in, in Stoke Me a Clipper? That's... Where I sort of, yeah, I sort of no, seesaw a little bit. No, I think I think you're you're right. I sort of have that uh, that question too. Um, I don't know. I mean, I sort of feel as if 
um, from most of the time in, in up until that episode, uh, Rimmer was a kid, you know, and yeah. it was terrible. And uh, also Crichton has, um, you know, Crichton references how at the beginning, how he is not actually presenting a complete view of Rimmer that he's mm-hmm. sort of manipulated uh, the, what he's presenting um, and sort of like Smoke Me a Clipper, uh, Kipper, um, the idea is that Crichton is sort of like doing this as therapy for Dave. So yeah. I can kind of understand it, you know, in, mm. in that context. Uh, and, I, and I like the sort of like distorted dancing figures, you know, it's vaguely, <laughs> it's a small world, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know. It's called the Rimmer Experience, and it's got mm-hmm. you know a, it's a ride, you know, with yeah. a, a cards. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I agree. I mean that, and the flashbacks uh, that you know they play golf on uh, some sort of low gravity moon thing. Um, you know the the stuff with uh, with Rimmer is the best parts, um, mm. which I think is kind of unfortunate, given that this is a sort of like post goodbye rimmer goodbye rimmer episode um and you know i mean i like those parts but i I feel as if the whole is a bit unorganized Mm. again yeah and i think one of the like you say one of the the best parts of this show are the rimmer bits like i say that bit with the low gravity moon is quite funny the bit where they go hunting the um the lockers and they're arguing over which Mm. one you know which one they're going to open and uh, Rimmer, uh, Lister gets a real haul, and then Rimmer basically gets a flamethrower to the face. <laughs> uh, it's good stuff. I really enjoy that. And like you said, the Rimmer experience at the end. Um, and I won't sing the song, but I love the 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 little Rimmer song. And I also love the uh, like you say they are funny. It, like you say, now you put in that context of it being therapy designed to irritate Lister. Um, I do like the sort of the the sort of weird little moments, the the, the little vignettes that they do show uh, of of, of Lister um, Rimmer sort of being the sort of like the hero character he saw in his own head even giving fashion advice to, to the cat and stuff I think are very good <laughs> um, and the, like I say, but the problem is again it just highlights that the Rimmer shaped gap in the show yeah. um, which is sort of again sort of like you know you've had two you know you've had a robberus and, and duck soup and then you follow it with this and you sort of go yeah, there's your problem. Like you've had two crap episodes back to back, pretty much, and now you you and now by doing this, you're sort of highlighting what your problem is. <laughs> um, well, I mean, in in fairness, there were like what five crap episodes back to back in in season yeah. five or six. So, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, so well, I mean, true, I, but I'm it, just it, you know. I I find the kiss really fascinating. Um, yes, you know I. I I don't know that the show knows what to do with that mm. or that whole tension of like, you know, Crichton hating women. I mean, all of this stuff is there. It's, it's context, not subtext. Um, mm. But, uh, but, you know, uh, I don't know. I mean, I mean, I, I, all I can say is, you know, he's not called, uh, He's not called Rimmer for no reason. And <laughs> he's got a, a hard light drive, a very hard light drive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If they were to write the story to Playboy, I'm sure it would get published. 
no, it's true. Like you know, there's clearly un- unresolved feelings between Lister and Rimmer, and and um, you know, it's it does. It's, the thing is, again, it's like that. This has been the thing with this whole series. Though. It presents an idea. But they're not entirely sure what to do to do with it once they've got it. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah, yeah. this idea of sort of like you know the sort of um, you know the sexual tension between or the potential sexual tension between Rimmer and Lister um, is you know it's pre- it's pre- like you said it's context it's presented on screen, and then they're sort of like oh yeah um, right well we'll backtrack on that and then you know and then it's <laughs> done underlined and moved on, and if I was you know, Kachansky and stuff later on, you'd still be like, well, man, that's that's not something you can deal with in an afternoon. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's clearly something that's uh, that's been bubbling away because you've spent an existence with four male, you know, as, as four male people in, um, <clears throat> you know, a confined environment for the last, what, six years? Um, you know, what happens in prison in that same situation? You know, it's sort of, Yes. It, it, it's, um, yeah. Right, very it, good it point. Of, it sort of, it tries to acknowledge it and then backtrack on it just as quickly. Um, and again, I, I think that's part of the era, you know. Um, yeah. I think, well, I, think that's it, very, it, I think that's very well said. I mean, what you're really arguing is that somewhere between Blue and the next episode, Beyond a Joke, um, clearly that's where most of that 18-month gap occurs in which Kachansky's mm-hmm. pregnant. Dave, you know, since we know from uh, the gap between series two and three that all unshown things take place in the alternate uh, gender universe, for mm-hmm. most of that 16-month gap, Dave went into the gender universe and resolved his romantic feelings for Arnold by <laughs> getting into a relationship with a female Arnold left Kachansky pregnant and then came back and delivered his own son under a pool table. And then we're right back to beyond the joke. But I think, I think you're exactly right that there are a bunch of really good ideas here, you know, a bunch of really uh, intelligent things that just are not actual full episodes. No, if anything, if this was star Wars, that's a series of novels. What you just said there would be a series of novels (laughs) (laughs) and Marvel would be doing a comic series about it as well. Um, but yeah, blue. I think is fun. it has its moments. Again, the river moments are great. I do. I think you know the fact that you can. I think it says a lot. The fact is, you can go onto YouTube and just find the Rimmer experience to mm. watch as a segment. Um, he's worth doing because I think there's the sort of like the little singing Rimmers um, and the, the the things they try to make rhyme with Rimmer um, <laughs> is is fantastic. Um, so yeah, I, I that's the ending of this episode, the ending of this episode is fantastic, um, and again it's another it's another it's a it's a solidish episode, but uh, yeah. So let, let's move on then. So like I say, we've we've we, you know a long let's agree a no. long period of time passes between Blue and Beyond a Joke, um, and then Beyond a Joke is um, again presents some interesting ideas that mm-hmm. um, I think. Maybe get explored a little bit more. Um, in this, the sort of we, we get to learn more about the sort of the AR. So Kachansky's learning to do sense and sensibility world. But what it boils down to is 
Um, Crichton has basically a massive hissy fit, um, <laughs> uh, and his head explodes. Um, and eventually, sort of several of his heads explode. They manage to save his personality, and they have to go find some others, some alternative heads. Luckily, they come across a rogue simulant that has some um, cry- some uh, mechanoid four thousand series um, heads, which is that's unfortunate. Three million years into deep space. Um, but they do, they have them, but he's also got, in this instance, he also has another 4,000 uh, series uh, in Abel, who has an addiction, um, and we eventually find that this addiction was caused by learning the truth of why why he looks or why he acts the way he does. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reveal is that his, uh, his creator, Professor Mamet, uh, made him, or made all four thousand series uh, emulate a former lover that, that that dumped her. So he's pompous, he's arrogant, and all this other stuff. Um, and and so that's why Abel sort of relies on this this drug. Um, what, what do you think about Beyond the Joke? Yeah, I mean, I I think it is uh, lesser than the sum of its parts. I mean, I you know, I I don't know that I like it as well as blue. I mean, it doesn't have a, a the Rimmer experience sort of, of bit to it. Um, I mean, you know, I, I like seeing some, some renegade sins. I mean, I like the, uh, the um, purple Crichton, the green Crichton, mm-hmm. who is, uh, well, we had the gold one in the, the parallel universe. Uh, but now here we have the, the green one. Um, and I like that he is, uh, you know, on this uh, alcohol cocktail yeah. that has ruined his mind. I mean, mm-hmm. and again, uh, great acting, um, you know, gives him a chance to shine. But, um, you know, I don't know. I mean, the stuff that it's it's the stuff that I like here all has issues like, you know, Crichton is being whiny. He He's being whiny because he's prepared a romantic dinner. Uh, you know, he even says, and our, on our anniversary too. You know, he, again, you know, he's still going through that same stuff that the show isn't fully willing to explore. Um, but, you know, it's interesting. Um, I don't know why they're all running off to Jane Austen world. Um, and avoiding a lobster dinner because they had a prearranged time. I mean, why yeah, are you such... Like, it's a computer game. You can start it any time. <laughs> right. Um, and, and then, you know, Crichton's head explodes, and, and then they put it, attaching spare heads. They all explode. Where the whole point of the spare heads, as we've seen even earlier this season, is that mm. they each have different personalities. Here... Yeah. His personality is on a ram ship, so the heads are just there, and you can get another head and attachment, and just attach it and restore Crichton. Um, and even the green Crichton that you know I like overall, um, you know the way that whole plot is resolved is that he, you know, having put the ship in danger by kind of passing out drunkenly against the console, then uses an escape pod and saves the ship, um, mm. but he does it by shooting his negativity at the evil Sim. Yeah. How did you do that? 
I mean, th- again, yeah. it just seems like, you know, just not a polished episode. No, it, it, I think that's the thing, is it? We've said this, and I'm beginning to think this is, I say, this is what um, Rob Grant brought to the, 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 the <laughs> partnership. You know, the idea that, that um, you know, we know that um, Crichton has emotions, you know, he's managed to sort of corrupt his programming so he can experience emotions. So, but it's, it's part of a corruption. You know, those emotions are all part of a corruption. Like, he's had to work to get them. So then the idea that he actually has this nega drive, this place to put his negative emotions and negative feelings and stuff. Well, why does that exist if it was part of your program corruption that these things exist in the first place? Um, so, yeah, they create this thing called the nega drive that contains And then that is used as a weapon against the, the, the rogue symbol and stuff later on. Um, it, it's just, again, it goes back to that sort of thing like with the robberus of... I've come up with an idea. It doesn't quite pan out, but we're going to go with it. Um, you know, sort of this, this whole thing of, well, we've got to sort of pay it off, so we're going to use it. Like, there are better ways of doing these episodes, or the, the much better <laughs> ways. Um, you know, he doesn't, the whole nega drive doesn't even like pay off. Why doesn't he just use, he's going to sacrifice himself. Why doesn't he just target the escape pod and use it like a missile and take out the ship that way? sacrifice himself mm-hmm. you know there are ways of doing it that doesn't have to get this complicated <laughs> the whole nega drive is a complete waste of time um yeah you know and so yeah it, it it's just an odd like they come up with episode ideas and stuff um i mean the one thing i would say again i there are, there are moments i like i think the whole moment of um Crichton going all sort of like rambo and taking out the uh, yeah the Bennett yeah. sisters is is really good, <laughs> <laughs> um, um, and I do kind of like the way they play the sort of the, the say the you know the, the whole sense and sensibility thing of them being the sort of um, I'm not, I haven't read the book I've only seen you know I've seen a couple of versions of it but having them all be sort of like quite tittering and sort of like you know and sort of thing and. and um, <laughs> Is, is is funny, but again, I'm thinking, isn't this supposed to be the? Isn't the point of it supposed to be about sort of almost like you know whatever was it early Victorian sort of empowerment or something? It's this feels a bit odd. Um, yeah, <laughs> that you've made them all sort of like dithering idiots. Um. So, yeah, yeah again, I don't like, know. Yeah. I mean, it's very strange, isn't it? I mean, I <laughs> I don't think much of Jane Austen. Uh, it doesn't, but it doesn't seem as if there is a coherent parody to be had here i mean all they do is walk through the forest together then Mm. they are cavalier about their sisters being missing and being dead essentially um and then uh you know of course you're you're right i mean i think the highlight of the episode is Crichton, you know attacking uh but um uh you know and then the end of the episode is uh you know, oh, we're serving Vindaloo, and it's like, oh, it's still too spicy for us. Yeah, really? I mean, that's your that's your punchline. I mean, haven't we seen, you know, a dozen better endings about spicy Vindaloo than this? And it, and we're going to see, you know, better moments about spicy Vindaloo very soon as well. Um, mm. So I don't know what the point is. You know, they, they, there doesn't seem to be a parody of Jane Austen here so much as like, you know. Uh, of reference in the sense of like those 
terrible, you know, like a superhero movie and all those terrible movies that are supposed comedies, but it's like Superman shows up and just acts mildly silly and then flies away. And you're like, ha ha, we parodied that movie. No, you just kind of included a silly version of it. So, yeah. I, I mean, I what was the point? That, and that's how it feels. I mean, you know, again... You, you get the idea. The reason they're going to Jane Austen world is because it's 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 a Kachansky thing. Like you know, this is where she spent a lot of her uh, youth, and she's you know she she loves going to this thing and she connects with it and all that. And I'm like, okay, that's great. That that to me is interesting in the sense of like, fine, that you you are giving us some information about Christine Kachansky and who she is as a person. All right, that's fine. So then give us an authentic Jane Austen world. Like, why does she go mm-hmm. here? What does she get from this other than yes. to sort of like Chloe Annette in this episode actually plays a more sort of convincing, uh, you know, participant of a, of a Jane Austen novel than the characters that are supposed to be from a Jane Austen novel. <laughs> um, you know, yeah. so yeah. It, it, I mean, you're, you're, you're entirely right. I mean, and, and I think that again, you know, what, what we're underlining here is that, you know, your, your point is incredibly well made about besides the joke of Crichton going Rambo, you know, which admittedly is good fun. Um, you know, the meat of this story, if you want it, is twofold, right? It is it, mm. the real meat of it is Crichton uh, struggling with his love for Dave. Mm. Um, you know, OK, it doesn't really get very deep with that. Uh, you know, the title comes from, you know, Lister says Crichton has evolved and Crichton says, you know, then I've evolved beyond the joke. Uh, you know, what does that mean? Um, you know, I'm not, I learned my origins that I was made to be angry, jealous, jealous and resentful. But I've evolved beyond that. No, I've embraced that. I mean, I, I, I you know, even that doesn't make much sense. I mean, was he all of those things um, before Dave got a hold of him? I mean, it doesn't seem to have a thesis statement about Crichton, but you're right that Kachansky, again, we're, you know, four episodes into, uh, you know, Kachansky being a crew member, and we haven't really gotten at her at all, except like, she's a girl, she likes Jane Austen. She was, you know, raised with some money. I mean, this is like a file card. This is not a character yet. No, she doesn't develop in this, and it's it's it's, it's frustrating. Um, but again, like you say, the whole thing with Crichton doesn't pan out because he hasn't been this sort of like you know, as he calls himself, sort of like clucking hen, you know, um, uh, jealous type in the past. I mean, you go back to series seasons of like four and five, like he's not like that at all, really. Maybe the odd moment, but not not to the extent that he is now in seven. And then to have it revealed that oh, that he was always designed to be this way, and you think, well, no, again, because the point of the whole thing is he's broken his programming, and that's what's made him this way. So now to say it's part of his programming originally contradicts, right. you know. And the other thing, even from we've talked about this with other sort of, you know, go back to like the Blade Runner thing. When we talked about why would you make them look so human if you could, you didn't have to, who the hell would buy it if that's what it was like? <laughs> hey, Surely I've got that, an Android sure. for you. It looks yeah. like a Rubik's cube, and 
it is it is unique in its ability to be jealous and resentful and cruel. <laughs> yeah, it it will make your household more intense and uncomfortable than you are right now, but it will do a great job of your ironing. Like I don't understand <laughs> like, the se- the selling point of that. It's it's an interesting sort of point. Again, you know, they try and do something interesting. This mm-hmm. idea of learning something about yourself that you didn't know that actually. Like you, you can't cope with, and that's why Abel's had to do that. Well, all right then. Do you know what? Have it be that he is he is given a code in which he is categorically told that Silicon Heaven doesn't exist. Right. Yeah. Hey, yeah. That that solves that whole problem. Well, I was just thinking the whole Silicon Heaven episode gets at something more interesting about Crichton and more meaningful and resonant than this. I don't even, you know, do you ever leave, you know, think back on this episode and think, oh, that's right. Uh, uh, His creator made them to be like this. No, it's irrelevant. Mm. It's not a part of that character going forward in any substantial way. Yep. And so, yeah, we are getting repeatedly, this is the thing that seems to be a theme of this episode. We are repeatedly getting sort of half an idea that is not polished. And also, whilst we are getting what I would say the minutia of continuity, the grander yeah. ideas sort of, you know, basically just like throw it in the face of continuity. It's all over the place in this season. Um, and, and yeah, th- very, very big... good point. Um, so yeah, that's, that's so yeah. Again, like, yeah, we, we're getting some fantastic moments from the cast. You know, I think Chris Barry's done some fantastic stuff as sort of, like we said, you know, in Stoke Me a Clipper, I think, um, Robert Llewellyn's getting to do some great stuff as Crichton, especially here when he plays Abel as well. You know, he's doubling up and he does some good stuff. And, you know, he's the cast are good. Even Chloe Annette, like she's trying her best to work with a bunch of comedic actors and do like do this stuff. And she, there are moments when she has some great moments, but like, the stories are just not holding together. Right. You know, and, yeah. and I'm not saying I'm not saying this needs to be high art or even sort of, you know, whatever. But we have praised previous episodes for being sort of concise and tight and telling funny stories or making a statement about character and then moving on. And this just this just can't do it. It's just sort of it's watching yeah. this back. It feels like the show falling apart in front of my eyes, and that's sort of how I feel about it. <laughs> wow. Seriously, that's how. But this, I'm like, oh, okay, these things working, but this is going away. Like what I loved about the show. Is is missing dramatically from this series. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I how, they, how you know how, but remember, uh, series six has a, just a run of bad episodes. I mean, you know, these aren't great. I mean, Stoke Me a Clipper is is great, but these aren't great. But I mean, at least each one has you know like an idea that I think, oh, that's interesting. I'd like to see that developed more. You fumbled the ball here, but you know, I mean, that that was okay. You know, that was an okay idea at its heart. Yes, it's a mess. I mean, yes, it's not. You know, I mean, I think maybe the worst thing that can be said about it is it's not funny. Mm. Nothing's funny. No, and I think that's the problem. I'm looking back at some the episodes of series six. Yeah, you know, there's some really weak ones. I mean, the, again, the opening sirens isn't great, you know. 
but and although we sort of pick fault with Legion, there are things that are funny in that se- that episode. That's you know that yeah. episode. They sort of they really plug into it. like the whole thing of, as I said before, like the first thing they do when they make Rimmer a hard light hologram is throw food at him. Like you know they do these yeah. good bits. Gunman of the Apocalypse, yeah, that's crap. Emo Hawk, again, like not they, they, good. They, they, not good, but they, you know they try and sort of bring back things. But Rimmer World is fantastic. Yeah, that is true. Yeah, um, and out of t- even out of time has its moments. Um, yeah, yeah. But I, I don't know. Like you say, I just don't find this series seven funny. Um, I mean, going into this sort of the, the last two episodes, because it's a two-parter, really. Kind um, of. Epi- yeah, <laughs> Epideme and Nanaki. Um, I just, you know, again, I get this feeling of like they're going for something, but it never quite works. So, epidemic, you know, you get the epidemic virus. But, sorry, what are you say? Whoa, whoa, whoa. There we go. We're going to break in just there. That's most of Series 7 that we've covered. We've been going for over two hours. And we're going to be covering the last two episodes and going straight into Series 8 in the next episode. I've got to cut these in because I want to condense them down. But you're getting them week by week. So, you've only got to get a week. You've only got to wait a week, I should say, before the next episode comes out. That's Series 7. I wonder what you thought about that. Do you agree with what we're saying? Do you think we're on the right path or the wrong path? Do Should we be uh, in the officers' quarters or should we down the brig? Let us know. See what you think about this. Come and contact us. We are on Twitter at PodTimeSpace. Uh, get in contact. Let us know. Uh, fascinated to see what people think. Hope you're enjoying this deep dive. We're getting there. We keep trudging on. We've got so much more to go. Some of the best episodes uh, are behind us, to be fair. Uh, but there's some really, really good episodes coming up. So uh, thank you very much, guys, for uh, sticking with us. And uh, we'll see you again next week. streams.